Okay, well, let's pray before we uh, look at this interesting passage in 2 Kings. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this um, word that you've handed down. Uh, We pray that you'd help us to understand uh, this part of the Bible and how it relates to us and how we should live as your people. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've ever noticed those um, crime scene investigator shows. Uh, I was reminded this morning that a chap who's a doctor who works as a in post-mortems and does autopsies called Ducky is not actually in the show called CIS. I got corrected on that. He's in NCIS, which I think stands for Naval Crime Scene Investigation. Is that right? Yes, good. I'm on the right track. Well, my wife watches these um, ridiculous shows and uh, I find because I've got the TV parked in my bedroom, I can't help noticing uh, Ducky comes on now and again with his surgical gloves and his white kit and he walks around in a cold room and he's trying to get involved in these autopsies to discover the cause of a death. So he opens people's up, people up to find out what's finished them off. It's too late for the uh, first aid by this time or any nurses or uh, ambulance people. Uh, their time is up and they've come to the end of the line. And in some ways, that's where we're at in the uh, message of two kings today. We see Israel really comes to the end of the line as well. And if we've got wisdom, we can actually learn something from uh, their mistakes. And so that's the the challenge for us this morning. Now, the heart of this sermon is going to centre on what happened in uh, chapter 17 and the trouble that really comes on Israel. Uh, But before we get there, we get an introduction to life in Judah. So if this was a movie, the camera would be panning away from Uh, Israel now and back down to Judah. So picture what's happening there. And in chapter 15 verse 32 uh, through to 16 verse 20 we get a look at two kings. There's a tale of two kings. The first one is Jotham and he's not too bad as a king. Verse 15, chapter 15 verse 34 says, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Apparently he was engaged in some building programs to either build or maintain the upper gates. Yet he did have some failings. You know, uh, when you watch the Olympics and they have the diving and they hold up placards for how well people do, you know, nine for degree of difficulty, two for the splash that the person caused when they hopped in the water. Well, this guy, he gets some points for uh, building the upper gates, but when it comes to removing the high places, he has a splash. He doesn't do too well. Uh, The high places were areas of cultic worship for the the nations that inhabited Canaan before the Israelites moved in. And they involved worshipping idols, images, standing stones. They had their Asherah holes. Asherah was apparently a goddess of the sea and she was a cohort to a god El. Unfortunately, uh, the, there were fertility rites practiced in these places and so there was um, cult prostitution there as well. And so the high place worship was something that was going to be a thorn in the side of Israel uh, and come back to bite her. 
But despite not dumping these high places, Jotham does go down in history as a pretty reasonable king. Especially when we compare him to the next king, who's in chapter 16, which is Ahaz. The tone really gets set for us with what kind of king Ahaz is when we look at verses 3 and 4. We're told that Ahaz walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Now, as we read that, we're, we're left thinking this guy is heartless um, and it's a dreadful thing to do to follow those kinds of practices. Verse 4, we're told he offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places, on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. What God had actually prohibited throughout Israel and, and told his people to have no other gods before him, it seems Ahaz has developed as almost a, a national religion. He uh, participates it in, he, in himself and people tend to follow their leaders and they've also engaged in this kind of godless worship. During the reign of Ahaz, he was uh, confronted with some trouble from Syria and Israel. They came up to wage war against him and he sought to fight back by calling on the help of a, an Assyrian king. When I did uh, Year 12, we studied the Assyrian kings and one of the things that I've always been impressed by is how well the Bible accords with history. When you look at the Book of Mormon uh, and the cities that they talk about, you can't find cities or coins that are in the Book of Mormon. But when you look at the Bible, there are coins like a denarius, which you can see in history, and there are Assyrian kings. And Tiglath-Pileser III is one of the kings that we studied. And it's good to see that the Bible accords well with history. What we learn is that Ahaz, unfortunately, uh, gives up on his allegiance to God and starts to put his trust in the king of Assyria. So in verse 7, he speaks of himself in these terms. He says, I am your servant and vassal, which is another way of saying I'm your slave and your son. It's kind of a, I'm, I've got a job to do here, but I'm also friends with you kind of thing. But to get the king... Is this buzzing a bit? Jacob, do you need to turn the thing one way or another just so I don't buzz too much? Is that better? I'll keep talking and you can tune it. Okay, we're up to 16 verse 8. And Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria complied by attacking Damascus and capturing it. He deported its inhabitants to Kerr and put Reason, who was the king of Syria, to death. And so we find that uh, Ahaz is forging this allegiance with the king of Assyria uh, and he's paying him off with, with tribute, loads of um, money, and he's taken it from God's temple. So it's not exactly what God intended for his temple, uh, to be under the thumb of another king, but that's the direction that Ahaz has taken as an ungodly king. We also find that um, Ahaz is a broad-minded kind of a character. He uh, goes and travels up to Damascus to give some tribute to this King Tiglath-Pileser III. Uh, and in the process there, he sees some uh, altar that he actually likes the look of. And so he asks one of his artisans to make it and to have it fixed back at the temple back at Israel. That happens. And then he comes back to Israel uh, and he performs all the sacrifices and 
the burnt offerings that are required on that new kind of fendangled altar from one of the <coughs> one of the pagan countries. But he takes the original bronze altar uh, and he uses that as a means of divination, divining. One of the things that people did in the ancient world was they, they slaughtered beasts and they pulled out their entrails and they studied them uh, and tried to foretell the future by looking at these entrails. And so we learn from uh, verses 10 through to 20 that um, Ahaz actually uses the, um, the, 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 the original bronze altar that God actually had planned uh, for some sorcery type practice. So Ahaz is quite a mixed bag. He combines a bit of religious worship of the living and true God with uh, a bit of cultic worship of these pagan religions. But he is a broad-minded kind of guy, you might say. The problem was that God alone sets the terms for which his people must come to know him uh, and the way in which they can worship him and deal with their sin before him. And people couldn't simply worship God on their own terms. They couldn't mix a bit of this and that. In fact, the king had a particular responsibility to lead well in this regard. His job was to not disobey God, but to actually uphold God's laws. And we see some of God's intentions for his kings in Deuteronomy chapter 17. So if you're going to do a bit of uh, work with me today to, to stay awake and to, to get into this, you'll have to do a bit of Bible flipping. So if you kindly turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 17, and we'll look at verse 18 of Deuteronomy 17 to get a handle on God's intentions for his kings. As we know, the people wanted a king to be like the other nations, and so they were sort of rejecting God as their king at one level. Um, but God did provide the terms for kingship, and he was to give them king. So we'll pick it up in Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him, and he is to read of it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his brothers or turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign long, a long time over his kingdom in Israel. So that's, that's God's intentions for his king, to actually know what's in the law and to write down and have his own copy to start with. We see something of God's intentions for his kings also in 1 Kings when God speaks to Solomon. So if you're flipping back to 2 Kings now, you're passing 1 Kings on the way and you can turn up to 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 4. 1 Kings... Chapter 9, verse 4. And this is God's intentions for Solomon, the kind of king that Solomon was called to be. 1 Kings 9, verse 4. As for you, if you walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all I command and observe, and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever as I promised David your father when I said you shall never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel 
And so he's calling his kings to walk there with integrity of heart and uprightness. These people are supposed to be the touchstone of uh, godliness in their nation. Broad-mindedness is a good thing, but not when it comes to coming to our Lord God. Broad-mindedness might be pretty good when it comes to making a pizza. Uh, You can mix a bit of this and a bit of that. If you like to have pineapple on your pizzas, that's okay. Hopefully you can move it to one half and I'll have the side with the anchovies on it. But when broad-mindedness is uh, combined with worshipping God, there is disaster. Uh, And we can see that Ahaz is cast in very bad terms as someone who who didn't love God nor worship him his God's way. And it's not just the old covenant where God set the terms for people to approach him. Uh, God also sets the terms for how we should approach him as well as members of the new covenant. So I'll read this section from Romans in Romans 3.22 which describes the only way we come to know God. Paul says, This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. That's the only way we can come to God. It's through Christ and it's trust in his work. And sometimes people might look down on us for holding that as a fundamental. They might think that we're a bit narrow-minded. But we're still in good keeping with what the apostles taught. Listen to what Peter says. In Acts 4 verse 12 he says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There's only one way that we can get to know God, and that's through Jesus. If we move away from that pathway that God's provided, then we're little better than Ahaz, who received a rotten assessment from the word of God. But I wonder when you're tempted to play down the significance of the way that God calls us to approach him. When are you tempted to be more broad-minded, if you like, regarding God's way of salvation? Well, I know when I've been teaching scripture um, state public school over the last four years, not every student has remained in my class. Some students have actually probably talked to their folks about what I'm talking about with regard to the way of salvation, uh, and they've found themselves out of my class. Now, I'll hasten to add that it hasn't been a great flood of students rolling out, and it hasn't been because of the behaviour. No kids have been throwing oranges into the fans and, you know, chucking chairs around the room and things like that. It hasn't been because of misbehaviour. It's because I've taught that salvation is found in Christ and that we can only receive it by trusting in him, not our good works, uh, and it's a gift from God. Some of these other students I've noticed haven't even been in my scripture class and they've rolled out of scripture as well. And they've gone to the Baha'i group where God's kind of pictured almost like a, a pyramid And they would sort of teach that people are looking at different sides of the same pyramid, but they're all, we're all, we're all on a pathway to God. We're all kind of happy families type stuff. That's what they're kind of teaching. Well, well, guess what? That's that's actually a difference to what we're teaching. Uh, The Bible says that there is one way, and we can only come through Jesus to know Him. And so, being broad-minded doesn't really fit when it comes to life 
with God. And that'll be a challenge for you at times too because there will be times when people think you are narrow-minded but God calls us to teach the truth in season and out of season and let his word be the the plumb line of truth for us to hold on to. Well, let's look back now, if we were doing the camera angle thing, uh, moving from a bit of time in Judah, now we're looking at what's going on in Israel. And we pick this up uh, in chapter 17 and look at 16 to 18. Ahaz was a dreadful king, and he's compared to the kings of Israel. A quick glance over chapter 15, we won't read it now, but in verse 9, 18, 24 and 28, is a reminder that each of these kings of Israel were rotten. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they continued in the sins of Jeroboam, who set up worship outside of Israel. And we find out in chapter 15, verse 29, that Tiglath-Pileser III, that Assyrian king, came and took from the nation of Israel. He invaded it, and I think some other historians have noted that he took the leaders back to Assyria, uh, and I think he replaced some of his own people there. He left only a little bit of land left in Israel, and Israel became later a vassal or a servant, if you like, to Shalmaneser V. It doesn't say Shalmaneser V in the notes, but the Assyrians kept pretty good records. They had their annals, and Shalmaneser V was the one that the last king of Israel, King Hoshea, had to pay tribute to, which was loads of money. But he didn't want to pay money to the king of Assyria. And so he decided to take his chances with another king in Egypt, a king called So. But Shalmaneser V uh, caught him and imprisoned him. He might have been out of Samaria at the time. And then Shalmaneser V spent three years laying siege to Samaria. The Bible doesn't get into the nitty-gritty too much of how the um, Assyrians were good at their warfare. Other historians do. They, They like to get stuck into how good their chariots were, how well they could build their siege engines to how fast their horses were and also the kinds of imagery that they portrayed around so that people saw how cruel they were. They, Just a brief example, they tied people down on the ground and tore their skin off them. It was called flaying and they had pictures of this put up everywhere uh, so that nations would, the cities would be frightened and sort of give up before they even got there. So the Assyrians were rather dreadful. The Bible, however, doesn't really get into that. It doesn't tell us also that Shalmaneser died partway through this siege and uh, another king of Assyria, Sargon II, finished the job off. It simply states the dreadful outcome of the Assyrian war with Israel in verse 6. And you can read it with me. In, not out loud together. Though. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Halah, in Gozan, on the Harbour River and in the towns of the Medes. And that's when we now move to the part of the Bible that's kind of like Ducky and the post-mortem. If we were doing an autopsy to find out what went wrong, how it's come to this, how they reached the end of the line, well, we start to get the picture in the next couple of verses. Verse 7. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God 
who brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord, their God, that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles, which had these images on it of Asherah, in every high hill and under every spreading tree, which is why I'm saying these things are everywhere. They're ubiquitous. At every high place they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that provoked the Lord to anger. Verse 12, they worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways. And so if you remember back to Elijah, he said, you know, if Baal's God worship him and if Yahweh's God worship him, but choose this day who you're going to worship, uh, the prophets called the people back. Verse 14, but they would not listen as they were as stiff-necked as their fathers. This idea of stiff-necked comes from a, a bit of an agriculture imagery where an oxen is pulling a plough and the person goes to steer the oxen, but the oxen won't be steered. They're yanking on the oxen to turn the thing, but the oxen saying, I'm not going that way. And this is the kind of imagery that uh, we're given of the people of Israel. They don't want to be steered by the Lord their God. Verse 15, they rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their fathers, this, this agreement and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. The idea is these things are empty things and the people have become pretty empty themselves. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do, and they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. So this judgment of God to bring the Assyrians upon them, which we can read about in Isaiah chapter 7 and 8, uh, it sounds harsh, and yet it still arises naturally out of their failure to live up to the terms that God called them to live up to. God's covenant was uh, very clear. He rescued them. He formed them as, as a big nation in Egypt, and then he brought them to himself. He describes as on eagles' wings. And then he says, although the whole earth is mine, if you uh, obey me fully and keep my covenant, you'll be my treasured possession. And the people responded to Moses and said, we will do everything the Lord has said. So the terms are already set. God has his people. They've agreed to be his people. And now I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And we're going to read through verses 11 through to 20. This is pretty good stuff, friends. I'm really glad to be able to have a look at this passage today because I think we can take something away from it. De Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11 through to 20. It should be in your... We're at point five of your outline. Note two, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11. Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. This is Moses speaking to the Israelites. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask, who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart 
so you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship then, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give your fathers Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Regretfully, the Israelite kings and the people failed to love the Lord their God. They didn't listen to his voice and they didn't hold fast to him. Isn't that a tragedy? But friends, these warnings of blessings and curses aren't Old, Old Testament limited. They're not, they're not limited to the Old Testament. We actually get some warnings in the New Testament as well. You don't have to flip up your Bible to listen to this one. I'll just read it out. In Hebrews 10.26, this is the message for us, friends. The Spirit of God is speaking to us today and he says, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who's trampled the Son of God underfoot, who's treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And he closes by saying, It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The problem that the writer to the Hebrews is addressing is people falling away, people who maybe professed to be Christians at one time uh, and rolling or spinning off into space, as I sometimes call it. The good news is if we hold on to Christ, if we persevere with our faith in Jesus and what he's done, and as Paul says in Colossians, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, then we can have a real assurance of salvation. That is a biblical assurance of salvation. If we hold on to Jesus and we persevere with our faith in him, we can be sure that we are right with God and we'll stand the test of time. My assurance should not be in the fact that back down where the glass house is, back in 1985 when there was a civic centre, I walked down the front at a George and Rita Galley crusade and became a Christian. It was a funny experience because I already trusted in the Lord, but that 
walk down the front was an interesting moment. It was a good moment. But the Bible doesn't call us to put our trust in a walk down the front or raising our hands or something when someone prays a prayer. The Bible calls us to have our assurance in the work of Christ and to rely on that. That's a biblical form of assurance, that we continue to trust in what Jesus has done. That's how we know we're right with God. Well, what hope was there for these people of Israel? What hope was there for them when their kings were dreadful and rolling off the rails and they followed them? Well, in 2 Samuel 7, 16, God promises David, he says, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God promises that there is another king, a good king to come. In Psalm 132, verse 11, we're told the Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath that he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. And so the people are, are given hope that there one day will come a king who is a, who's going to reign over his people uh, and be a good king forever. And the New Testament writers pick up on that and they come to terms with Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we have a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In Matthew 1.17, actually, yeah, 1.16, it says, And Jacob, uh, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ, which is Messiah, uh, God's anointed one, the, the one that they had hoped for. And Matthew recounts the generations from uh, David right through to Jesus and says there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon and 14 from the exile to the Christ. And so Jesus is traced as one who sits on the throne of David. In Matthew 21, uh, there's a quote that says, as Jesus comes to Jerusalem, Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Jesus is cast in terms of as one who fulfills his prophecy as a king. He's the king who comes to Jerusalem. The difference with uh, Jesus as king, though, is he does reign forever. This is what we read in Acts chapter 13, 36. For when David had served God's purposes in his own generation... He fell asleep. Hopefully no one's falling asleep now, which is important to me. Uh, That means he died. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Verse 38. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified. They're acquitted from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. The sacrifices in Moses' time need to be repeated year after year. They couldn't, it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But Jesus comes as the perfect sacrifice. He's the one who uh, isn't a dreadful king like Ahaz, Ahab, Omri. There's a whole stack of them, isn't there, who we know are dreadful. He actually is faultless. Uh, And he willingly, I guess, carries out God's law completely and he dies on our behalf. 
He's the king who is risen. He's the king who's prepared a place for us in his kingdom. And he's the king who, the Bible tells us, will return to judge us and to take us to be with him. May God strengthen us this week to be people who persevere uh, as narrow-minded Christians with our focus and our faith on Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. May we not be enticed away from him. May we stand the test of time. And may God help us do that. Let's pray. And Lord God, we do thank you for your faithfulness, your faithfulness to bless your people when they... Uh, love you and serve you. We thank you that you bless us with salvation and and life. And Lord, we also thank you that you show yourself to be a God of justice, that you are also faithful to your covenant promises to judge those who do rebel and don't walk with you as their God. Lord, we do thank you for Jesus, that he did not fail uh, as a king of Israel, but he was a good king, a faultless king, who willingly laid down his life for us and he reigns as a king over us as well. Lord, we thank you that uh, in him we have forgiveness of our sins. <coughs> Pardon, Father, we ask that you would help us to be people who continue to love your word, uh, to listen to how you call us to live as your people uh, and not to ast- go astray. Help us to be uh, maintaining these fundamentals which your word holds down, that salvation is found in Christ and it's to be received through our faith in him. Father, we thank you for this time now. We've had to look at these things and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.